welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 141st episode, our returning guest is Carlos Dangler. You first heard Carlos Dangler on episodes 87, 88, and 123 of the podcast. Carlos Dangler is a freelance actor, musician, writer, and filmmaker living in New York City. Carlos is completing post-production on a festival-bound short film called Iowa. He wrote, directed, and starred in the film, along with composing the score and editing. It is based on characters from Charles D'Ambrosio's short story, The Scheme of Things. He has written for N Plus One, Seven Stories Press, and is working with Foundry Literary and Media on writing his first memoir. He performed a critically acclaimed one-person show for New York Fringe Festival in 2016 entitled Homo Sapiens Interruptus and guest performed with The Late Night with Seth Meyers' house band. Carlos worked with director Terry Kinney at Lincoln Center Theater in 2016 and performed with DeCamera of Houston, portraying Marcel Proust in a devised theater piece with music in 2017. He received an MFA from NYU grad acting in 2015 and was the founding bass player and keyboardist for the band Interpol from 1997 to 2010. Carlos is currently developing an experimental monologue called The Importance of Ernest, loosely based on the similarly titled play by Oscar Wilde. Carlos is an avid backpacker and amateur nature photographer. He has a Flickr album full of photos from all of his adventures and a recently edited hiking video on Vimeo shot entirely on his iPhone in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. He has raised money for the Fresh Air Fund on GoFundMe through his backpacking adventures. And now on to the show. Well, hey, thanks for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so uh, we've got a lot to talk about here. Uh, we've uh, <laughs> I've seen the movie uh, The Dirt, uh, Motley Crue's uh, biopic, and uh, you wrote a pretty interesting essay about it. So uh, yeah, a lot to discuss, but uh, I guess... First of all, I was just interested in, in your kind of first experiences listening to Motley Crue. I, I remember from talking to you previously that you were kind of a metalhead growing up and that, you know, you kind of thought that this album, their their debut album, kind of crossed a lot of musical boundaries as far as punk and metal and that. It's true. Um, I'm going to do a big confession. Um, when I was a headbanger growing up as a teenager in, in the suburbs of New Jersey and also a little bit of in New York as well, in Elmhurst, Queens. I actually hated Motley Crue. Hmm. They were one of the best, and I because I also hated poison. I hated hair metal. <laughs> I, I just despised it because what I was kind of getting into it for was much more of the kind of fantasy narrative, like the fantasy mythology aspect of it, like the kind of swords and fire-breathing dragons aspect of heavy metal, like in Iron Maiden and mm-hmm. Judas Priest, a little bit more, and Metallica, just a little bit more serious in that level, or more, like, fantasy-oriented. So bands that were, like, singing about uh, women and, you know, uh, like, you know, for instance, Cherry Pie, just one of the one of the more, more glaring examples of, like, the <laughs> kind of glam metal, you know, and there's... There's plenty to talk about. There's plenty to unpack there. But that, I, I hated that stuff back then. Um, and so Molly Crew, as kind of being really the, the, progenitors, the progenitors of glam metal, of, of, of um, hair metal, you know, they were kind of like the first in a way. 
Hmm. Um, they just rep- and they were so huge. I mean, just like you said, heavy metal, and you could either go Metallica or you could go Motley Crue. And really, there were lots of, you know, there were camps in my community, like where I only hung out with people who didn't want to listen to that shit. Mm. And we considered that music, that variant of metal, as being a kind of like, a, in a way, like an olive branch to the mainstream. Mm. Like, well, this is the stuff that's on the radio that you hear on MTV. That's your idea of what heavy metal is. But actually, you don't know about this other kind of heavy metal that's the real metal that you don't hear on the radio, like Iron Maiden, Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, you know, the thrash metal, and even some of the death So that was sort of more like my take uh, back then. Then I kind of gravitated in the wake of the, you know, kind of transformation of, of, of the musical landscape with uh, grunge music and Nirvana. Punk became kind of like the cool thing. You know, if you were a headbanger, you really had to quickly kind of make a move and say, are you going to like double down and stick to your guns and just be like part of the kids that like are not going to let go of that? Or are mm-hmm. you going to get with the new program, which is punk, grunge, nirvana, you know, a little bit more of like an alternative heavy rock aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So I started hanging out with these these kids that were really into like punk hardcore and they were listening to the first Motley Crue record too fast for love. Mm. And that I just found, you know, these were kids that were listening to minor threat and, um, uh, youth of today. And like, just, you know, agnostic front, like really super hardcore DIY, uh, hardcore punk stuff. Mm-hmm. listening to, to once in a while they're popping in that tape in the car mm-hmm. and i kind it kind of legitimated is it legitimized or legitimated i can't remember but i'll i'll mm-hmm. go with legitimized <laughs> it legitimized motley Crue in my eyes because these kids who, who like would never like be caught dead at a metal concert and and eschewed all of the you know idiotic kind of immature gropings towards Dungeons and Dragons and all of that imagery. They were about mm-hmm. real stuff like mosh pits and, and anger. And, you know, like it was like, it was more psychological. Mm. If they were listening to that first crew record, then they crew must've been up to something. Mm-hmm. And then I think when the odds came, we had a kind of res- renaissance for the, you know, kind of a soft spot for the eighties you know, 90s was all about hating the 80s. So mm-hmm. the 80s kind of came back into fashion in the aughts. Motley Crue became, all of a sudden, became one of the coolest bands that you could listen to. Mm-hmm. And people were going back to those records and saying, wait a second, this was an amazing band. And also, look at what how brilliantly they handled the idea of rock and roll spectacle. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, then I took an even deeper dive back into Crue. Uh, during that time so that's sort of you know and then since then i've just basically you know i i love some tracks from uh theater of pain but it's really about those first two records girls Girls also has a couple uh great tracks there as well but i mean you know you really can't get much better than the than that first album in my opinion 
That's my Motley Crue story, Rob. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, good. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking to what growing up my parents would have thought about me listening to Motley Crue. And you, you, you say that for in the metal community, they were kind of seen as too soft or mainstream. But I'm sure my parents would have seen, you know, the uh, the Shout satanic the imagery and uh, the you know the music videos, and they would have just thrown it all in the same bucket and said, "Oh, this here's is the thing. this is terrible." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the thing: You're, we're forgetting that. Back in the 80s, before the internet, uh-huh. you couldn't, if you'd missed a band's music videos or album when that album came out, you basically didn't see that music video ever again until like there was some kind of uh, throwback show or like a history of that band, like a documentary or something. Like that video was sort of like lost to the nothing of of history because, on you know, with the internet, which kind of globalizes all of history and all of history is now all of a sudden accessible we didn't have that we were kind of stuck in our year so by the time i was actually sort of listening to 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 when i was getting into metal it was about 87 it was kind of on the later stage of that process for for heavy metal and that was the year that girls 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 came out and if you look at the iconography on that record it's not that satanic stuff that was like Nikki Six was kind of like David Bowie in the sense of each album had a theme and he kind of had a concept for each one. Shout out that, you know, Satanism was sort of like the sort of blanket topic he was kind of going for on that second record. But I mean, they they never were really, they, they used a bit of satanic imagery in that that music video. But then they quickly moved on in Theater of Pain. They quickly moved on to other you know, forms, and then by Girls, 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 they're just kind of like this motorcycle band in a way. You know, they're not really even doing anything. So by that point, they just looked like these, you know, super slick dudes that I just despised. Also, Tommy Lee was a lot more in the news back then because of his marriages. Mm-hmm. But then I was just like, well, these guys are just like tabloid uh, monsters. Like, the kind of bands that I listen to are serious, are talking about serious stuff. Like Metallica, you know, Metallica was kind mm-hmm. of sort of just concepts like justice and famine and sick, mm-hmm. things like that. So that was sort of, you know, where where I, I was going for stuff that couldn't make it into the mainstream back then. And crew seemed to be, you know, and I talk a little bit about this in the piece that they seemed to kind of do they, they very adroitly handled the whole PR aspect of their group while being a good band at the same time. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I do think the songs hold up. I mean, if you go back and listen to, like you said, those especially those early songs, they you know, musically they definitely hold up. Um, and I think that there is something to be said for the bass player Nikki Six being the main songwriter and kind of driving force because those bass lines are so iconic. You know, uh, it's just amazing how they've kind of endured the test of time. You know, he to me he was always the coolest one in the band. I actually got to meet him very briefly in like the mid aughts after reading the dirt and they were playing the main stage at a festival that uh, interpol was playing the uh you know side stage of and uh-huh. i i made a request with our uh publicity person and and she was like let me get cracking on that and uh, she came back like 20 minutes later and she says i think it's a go come with me and i was like no fucking way <laughs> So he walked over to his tent and we talked for like five minutes and I even have a picture of it. I, I have to 
you know, it's on a, on my, it was taken on my uh, disposable camera. So I have to dig it up out of the, uh, the shoe box. But, um, he, you know, and I told him how real I thought he was in, in the dirt. You know, I found his chapters to be the most intelligent, compelling. And I mean, even if you don't look at him now, but listen to him, he, he is, he's, if you were to hear him talk right now, and you weren't watching video of him, you would think that you were talking to somebody that, you know, could appear on this show, for instance, you mm-hmm. know, he, he's very articulate and mm-hmm. very, very intelligent. I just, I really wonder what's going on, going through his mind, like how he thinks about all of this. Mm-hmm. Well, the, like you said, like a lot of the imagery is so over the top that it's kind of easy to dismiss if you just kind of look at it initially, but obviously there's a lot of, you know, thought and, you know, uh, work that went into creating these various images. And, you know, that does take a lot of planning and kind of background intelligence that you might not think of if you just kind of look at, you know, who are these goofballs, you know? Of course. No, there's a lot of intelligent design behind the entire package of that mm-hmm. group. Um, and I think they, they're one of those rare bands that you really, you see, you know, some bands that there are too much spectacle, not enough music. And then a lot of bands are too much music and not enough spectacle. And there, there are problems with both of those balances. Um, I feel like they were one of the ones that really hit the best balance between the, you, you could theoretically say, I love Motley Crue, but I just don't ever want to look at them. And I don't ever want to go to a Motley Crue show. Not that you can't anymore because they don't, they aren't. They don't, they're not a band anymore, but, but, uh, you know, those, those yeah. are good enough that you could just be like, I just want to listen, <laughs> you know, and then you could be somebody that just kind of loves the, the whole mystique of camp metal from the eighties and hair metal and not really be paying too much attention to the music. And that they, they would offer you a lot as well. If you were that person. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked a little bit about the the book of the dirt, but I think it's an interesting concept because it's a collaborative biography, kind of written by the whole, each member of the band contributes a section, right? That's kind of how it's structured. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that kind of seems like it gives a pretty good cross section as opposed to hearing just one person's voice uh, of you know the experiences. So. Yeah, that's that's what makes the book so such worth so worth the read. You know, mm-hmm. like I write in the piece, there's, you know, it does have a certain kind of cachet and a reputation, um, which, you know, depending on how you slice it may or may not be deserved. But I think it's just one of those books that really, uh, you know, it's surpri- you, you kind of you show up for something and then you stay for something else. It's one of those where you kind of mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I, I picked this book up because I just wanted to see what was you know, what it was like, and you get that, but then you quickly kind of move past that because it takes you so deep into their story. Um, and a lot of that has to do with Neil Strauss, who edited it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, an excellent journalist. He's done other work. Um, he's another guy that I met very briefly. We, we hung out at a festival watching bands and kind of walked around before I knew that he was the, the guy who had done The Dirt. And he made mm-hmm. of it, yeah. hanging out, which I thought was rather modest of him. Um, but <laughs> he uh, he really did an expert job in kind of creating a narrative just from eliciting what he needed to elicit from the group. I imagine that he 
you know, met with them frequently and asked them to write about certain things and coached, probably coached them in terms of like going into stuff. They would submit drafts and it didn't contain enough material about so-and-so topic. And he probably said, hey, we need to hear more about this. You know, there, there's a lot there. His his sort of ha invisible hand is very, very noticeable to at least to um, to someone who's looking at it from a, uh, a more kind of writerly perspective, um, mm -hmm. as some of us are. Mm -hmm. For sure. Now, you read the book first and then you saw the movie. And well, I read uh, the book in like or oh five or something like that. OK, so, you know, so I a long time ago. It's been it's right. a, I still have my copy, but it's it's. It's it's dog-eared and it's been a long time. I wrote I actually read it while I was on tour, ah. uh, and uh, and then yes, saw that the movie came right. out. Right. Yeah, I always feel like if you read the book first, you're you're almost bound to be disappointed by the movie. I can only think of a few. I can only think of a few examples of a time when I've seen the movie and thought it was better than the book. The Shining. The sh Oh well, yeah, you might be right. Yeah, I've I could see read that. The Shining, but I've, I've heard that. Uh, that um, uh, Stephen King was rather displeased with uh, mm -hmm. Stanley Kubrick's take on on his book, and I, I one can only imagine is that Stanley Kubrick must have kind of improved the book because you know that mm -hmm. is such a work of art in my opinion. Right. Well, I think his uh, from what I can remember, his complaint was that it makes him look crazy from the beginning and it's not like you see the guy go crazy over the course of the story. So, but I mean, it's, it's, a, they're, I think they're both great. So I don't have a problem. I think that is a good example though, the shining, but yeah. um, it's a rare yeah, one for sure. Um, but, you know, going to the concept of a, of a biopic, uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting that the band was also the producers of the movie and I think it's it's hard to get a distance on a story if you're involved in the creation of it, like if you're the subject and the storyteller. So I feel like that's an inherent problem with, you know, not just this movie. I, I felt like uh, we, you mentioned in your piece, Bohemian Rhapsody had a lot of problems, too. And that was also, I think, co-produced by Brian May and maybe someone else from Queen. But Anyway, anytime it seems like you're playing both roles, it seems like there's there's no way you can be totally objective about yourself. Uh, Absolutely, I completely agree with you. I I, uh, I don't know if you've seen the infamous band meeting with the manager scene in Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know the scene I'm talking about? Uh, describe it a little bit. I, I've seen they're, it. They're essentially recently. sitting at a table outside, and there this manager comes in and starts schooling them. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of been it's kind of gone viral on the Internet as an example of the absolutely atrocious editing in that movie, which is quite ironic. Mm -hmm. They want they, it, the movie won an Oscar for, mm -hmm. for for editing. And it is it's actually quite the opposite of an Oscar deserving <laughs> movie. It is literally one of the <clears throat> most atrociously edited movies. And if you watch mm -hmm. this scene, you will see what what people are what people mean and it's also a, a direct example of the problems of having let's say a band like queen oversee the uh the um the production because the, what's the reason why that that scene is so poorly edited is because the camera is constantly cutting to shots of every single band member just with giving equal weight and so you have no sense of what's driving the scene or who the main character is there's no under, pardon me. There's no understanding of the uh, 
of the narrative drive of that scene. And I can only imagine that it's a similar case for the entire film. And I think right there is an example of the prejudice and the bias that probably corrupts the, the narrative drive in a movie when you have people who've dedicated their entire lives to this trademark or this brand that you could call queen. And so they naturally feel a sense of ownership and control over it. And of course, anybody who's going to work on this project is going to be very deferential to them because they're the people who fathered the whole idea in the first place. So to, who's going to want to contradict Brian May when he complains that there's yeah. not enough of a, of a shot of the bass player or something like that? The director's not going to intervene, right? The director's not going to piss mm-hmm. off Brian May, right? And that that's sort of, I think, an example of the, of the problem where you're trying to create a movie and instead it becomes fan service and it's not really a movie. And so then the movie is really bad and then it makes you think less of the band, ironically enough. But yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, I, I just feel like that's a problem with a lot of these biopics. And uh, you use the term brand pornography. Do you want to explain what you meant by that? Yeah, I, I use that in the piece that I wrote. Um, and I think, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody is a good example of brand pornography. The movie, the uh, dramatization on Netflix of The Dirt, um, I think is a is a pretty stellar example of brand pornography. And I just mean, what I mean by brand pornography is just when a certain bit of media or a product or, you know, something that could be called a work of art on a certain level insofar as, let's say, a movie can be construed as a work of art. Not every movie is a work of art, obviously, but some are. Um, That instead of that, that the true function of that thing, instead of it being a movie, it's to actually titillate the um, sort of uh, adjacent desires of a certain consumer base of a certain pre-existing product. Mm -hmm. So it's like merchandise, I think, is a great example of brand pornography. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and with merchandise, I feel like it's a little bit less of a guilty. I think it's there's less fault to place there because if you're let's say with a rock, you have like a rock T-shirt. Like, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with a rock T-shirt. You're you're sort of communicating when you wear when you buy it and when you wear it, you're communicating Mm -hmm. to the world that you belong to a certain tribe. And that's an important message to kind of tell the world if 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 being part of that community or being part of that tribe is very important to you. And so that kind of becomes an extension of the the kind of ethos that's behind the making of the album or the band or the forming of the band or the live show in the first place. So that feels organic to me. But then, you know, let's take Kiss as an example, who are probably the most notorious brand pornographers that ever were. And quite unfortunately, without any kind of shame have peddled their brand for for decades now i mean they gene simmons i think has been very clear about his intentions in that regard mm-hmm. and so they create action figures they create comic books they create all sorts of crazy things that really have nothing to do with the music and in the case with like with a band like kiss they were already formed so much on the on the, the back of a concept right that the you know they 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 make good music. I'm not going to say that Kiss is a bad band. They they certainly mm-hmm. have some really really fantastic 
material, but so much of the identity of, of the brand known as Kiss, let's call them a brand instead of a band, is that this idea, this concept, which lends itself very readily to kind of, you know, a diasporal notion of, of uh, merchandising, where you can say we can create co coffee coasters, we can create beer mugs, we can create all sorts of anything and people will buy it and they'll be participating in the brand, even though they're not mm -hmm. listening to the music, which is apparently ostensibly supposed to be the sort of thing that KISS is, right? They're, they are a band, right? But they're really more than just a band, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like an example. And I think that with the realm of a biopic, it is very, very easy for that, and I think it happens most of the time, that that endeavor turns into brand pornography and that it becomes another adjacent kind of consumer product of that brand. And so you go and you don't care whether it's a bad movie or not, do you? If you're a Queen fan, you go to see Bohemian Rhapsody and maybe it's the first movie you've gone to in a year because you don't watch movies, but you go to this, right? So you're not really going to see the movie now, are you? Right. You are going to participate mm -hmm. in the band's merchandising. So my my problem with that, and that's why I call it pornography. I mean, I believe pornography should exist. So I'm not necessarily placing too much of a value on pornography. But the, if we define pornography by as just simply the uh, the the, the pr put, putting forward the, the sort of dopamine hit that you're getting from whatever it is that you're devouring. So most most of the time what we understand pornography to be is like is sexually titillating material. So that's why we're watching that video is to get sexually titillated by by that. So it's not about watching the video, right? When you watch pornography mm -hmm. online or or if you go or if it's the 80s when you go into the movies. So that's why I call it pornography because you're going to it on the basis of an ostensible cause, but 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 actually, what's what you're really participating in is some kind of ulterior or clandestine mess, like product, you know, which mm -hmm. is in the case of Bohemian Rhapsody, or in the case of The Dirt, participation in the in the in the in the sort of adjacent manifestations of that brand. So, if you're a director or a producer or something, and you want to do something that's kind of uh, imaginative or or if you want to explore or if you want to interrogate the notion of queen or the notion of motley crew and you are having brian may or nikki six on staff in the writer's room how are you going to properly conduct that interrogation when mm -hmm. you the guy who's in charge who started this whole, the whole brand telling you what is written in the Bible of that brand and what is not. So in order to properly interrogate it, you're going you're gonna to have to construe the Bible of that brand as being just one item among many other items to consider mm -hmm. creating a biopic. But you won't be allowed to do that, right? Because the, the, the overseer of the, 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 uh, the brand protector will be there to contravene upon that. I think one of the greatest examples, which is actually a movie I have not seen and it's on the docket and I definitely need to see it, is the, is the, um, the Bob Dylan. Uh, I was going to bring that up, actually, yeah. That is a perfect example 
of how, and I mean that, you know, maybe abstract sort of, you know, post-structuralist thought within cinema is not your bag. But, and, and so you might not like that movie based on its sort of aesthetic treatment of the Bob Dylan phenomenon. Say what you will about the aesthetics. One cannot deny that that movie is a very uh, incisive interrogation of what we understand the notion of Bob Dylan to be, right? When we go to that movie, we are not engaging in Bob Dylan brand pornography because I don't think even, that, that just shows you how legitimate of an artist Bob Dylan actually is because the notion of brand pornography for Bob Dylan is, it's difficult to kind of come up, you know, you could say, oh, okay, he's an American folk guitarist or something. That doesn't really kind of, adhere too too well to Bob Dylan. He's just, he's much more, he's, he's so much more sophisticated than that. So of course, the biopic is going to be similarly sophisticated in that regard. And, and his, I think, I don't know how much involvement he had in it, but it is, in my opinion, a, a really good example of a successful interrogation of the, of the, of the symbol that is Bob Dylan. Um, I don't think you have to be a Bob Dylan in order to do that. Like I say in the piece, mm -hmm. there's you could look at you could watch Glow, and you know when Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling, came out in the '80s. I don't think anyone really took them all that seriously back then. I mean, they took them as seriously as you can take professional as 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 seriously as you can take professional wrestling. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Certainly, in hindsight, they look very you know looks very campy and very kind of part of the 80s, right? So we're not dealing with like a Bob mm -hmm. kind of level of depth in terms of the imagery. But that show is fantastic. You, you, that show is a really great show because it interrogates the notion of glow. So my disappointment around the dirt mm -hmm. is that, that there was this kind of real absence of interrogation about the Motley Crue phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I haven't even read The Dirt. I just watched the uh, Behind the Music uh, episode on VH1 back when I was in high school, so I already knew a lot of those kind of main points, like Ozzy snorting the ants and the uh, thing about him shooting up and then dying and then shooting up again. Like, I, I knew the, the main beats, and I think, like you're saying, if people go to a movie like that, they want to see those things. It's like, hey, when are we going to see Queen at Live Aid? I want to see Queen at Live Aid. I'm at the Queen movie, you know? And it's like, exactly. got to check the boxes, you know, for the people that came to see that one thing. And it's like, I've already seen Queen at Live Aid. I don't need to see your, your subpar, you know, exactly. recreation of it, you know? <laughs> but but if, you're, if you're not really thinking, you do want to see that because you're just drunk on Queen, right? Mm -hmm. You're just like, I can't, I feel like I'm at a Queen concert, oh, <laughs> even though it doesn't matter. Oh, look, look at them go. Look at them talk. Uh, you know, yeah. it's so base. It's not really, mm -hmm. it's not really, um, it's not really a, a higher engagement with the material. Mm -hmm. You know, some people, I've spoken with my girlfriend about this, who, you know, there's some people that we know that uh, are also uh, fans of metal and of, of crew in particular, who don't share my um my um desire to see uh something with a bit more depth in terms of this kind of secondary coverage of, of a brand and the reason that they give is that well motley crew was was campy to begin with you know so why would the movie be good they were never supposed to be serious so why should the movie be serious 
which actually doesn't, that's, that's a false equivalence in my opinion, because actually the phenomenon of Molly Crew was serious, not like in the digestion of it. I mean, obviously though the imagery isn't serious on that level, but what they accomplished is a very serious thing in the same way that what John Waters accomplished with his movies is a serious thing, even though the movies themselves are what you would call trash cinema, but they, they function on the level of art because of how uh, sort of consistent the methodology is, because of the groundbreaking nature, because of the daring, because of the courage. All of that can be applied to Motley Crue. So the actual form of the original art, you know, art form was fantastic to begin. It, it, that, it was high art on, insofar as you can look at camp as high art. So to say that the movie then does not have to be good is a, is a total false equivalence. In fact, if anything, it asks the movie to be better than your average movie because it's covering something that was an important contribution to the larger cultural ecosphere. Mm-hmm. Well, you speak at a camp, and one of the most campy biopics I remember seeing was uh, Great Balls of Fire, the uh, Jerry Lee Lewis one with uh, Randy yeah. Quaid as, uh, yeah, <laughs> that was like a live action cartoon, but uh, it was interesting because he's kind of the cent- the center of what he did you know, and is infamous for is pretty gross, uh, you know, marrying his, uh, I think, 13 year old cousin. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's like they it almost seems like they had to be that campy just to get you to digest the facts yeah. of the case. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that movie like, you know, that movie came out at a time when we as a society were not ready to truly look at those problems, let's say. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the Michael Jackson documentary. Oh, I have. Oh, my gosh. I can't even listen to Michael Jackson anymore after seeing that. It's terrible. Right. Yeah. I mean, it really kind of, you know, it's there's been some great talk subsequent to that. Uh, There's a great podcast um, still processing um, Mm -hmm. the name of the podcast. And they did a special on it. Like, how can we possibly cancel Michael Jackson? Yeah, you can't. (laughs) It's too too deep. They're really wrestling with with his legacy and and now with the addition of that documentary but mm-hmm. one of the one of the the damning one of the most damning aspects and I'll, you can tell me if you agree with me or not about that documentary is how they are showing this footage of Michael walking around with kids in plain sight mm-hmm. holding hands holding arms together crawling yeah. around and we this was not footage that we needed to dig up it was like an abc news profile or some mm-hmm. something else from the 80s and the 90s and we were we look at each other and say wait we i was there i watched that like when it came yeah. out and i didn't say anything none of us mm-hmm. Said mm-hmm. It just goes to show how like society truly is an organism in that respect and we're not going to be ready to investigate certain things until we are I think if a Jerry Lee Lewis movie came out, if that movie came out today, if Great Balls of Fire came out today, there would be an absolute brouhaha and a deservedly one uh, if that movie tackled the issue of um, that kind of age gap uh, in the same kind of cavalier way that it did in the original, right? I mean, it would just, 
It wouldn't. It wouldn't fly, and and deservedly so. It, it wouldn't fly. I think it is the responsibility of the filmmaker to address that topic. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, when, when and I accepted the same excuses that I think everyone else did of Michael Jackson at the time. You know, he didn't have a childhood. You know, he he had his childhood stolen, and that's why he does this. And now I'm like looking back, and I'm like, well, so what? A lot of people didn't have a childhood. Is that does that make this okay? I don't think so. <laughs> like, I'm not letting my kids sleep with this guy. You know? Yes, like, I mean, just because he didn't have a childhood, that's not an excuse. <laughs> so. It's also a yeah, quite a. Uh, you know, quite a damning portrait of fame and celebrity as well. I think it, because when you just, you know, the, the, the family wrestling with the decisions that they made to allow this to happen under their noses. Um, I think that's one of the best parts of the film is that they're actually also interviewing the parents and they're going back and really reviewing like when they let certain things happen and how just utterly enthralled they were by this creature known as Michael Jackson. That, you know, if anyone else would have asked, hey, can, can your kids sleep in my bed? It, 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 they would have called the police, but because it was yeah. Michael Jackson, you know? Right, exactly. Kind of like when you read these accounts of old corrupt popes from the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. where they, you know, in order to gain entrance into heaven, they would request, you know, a night with your daughter and things like that. There was a, mm-hmm. there's, there's lots of, and Pete, we kind of look at them and say, how could that ever happen? And then, well, it just did happen, actually. Except yeah. the royal, the the kind of royal persona now is no longer this sort of father of the church and connection to God, but it's this other version of it, which is sort of the pop cultural hero and icon that Michael Jackson was. Mm-hmm. Well, and you talk a little bit about this in the piece because the movie, and I'm sure the book too, shows the band doing some pretty despicable things you know uh uh, beating women uh obviously mistreating women in other ways uh you know vince neal drunkenly drives around and kills his friend uh that's pretty inexcusable uh you know there's just all these things and i guess that we all know about them so they're kind of undeniable but when we look at them if they're not really the, the movie at least doesn't seem to examine this it just is like well Oh, that happened. I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't seem to have much curiosity about, oh, is this wrong or right or, you know, anything else. But what was your take on that part of it? You're exactly. That's it's another box to check now, isn't it? In the movies. Yeah, right. It's like, oh, we got to hit those marks, you know. Um, there's a great uh, I want to plug it. There's a <laughs> there's a great YouTube uh, video. Perhaps you know about it. It's called The Broken Formula of Music Biopics. It dropped two months ago, and I think it probably dropped in the wake of the Bohemian Rhapsody um, movie. It's gotten like close to 350,000 views already. It's about half an hour long, and I highly recommend any listeners to, uh, to, to, to watch it because it's a very, very adroit analysis of one of the big reasons why music biopics are so utterly formulaic, vapid, superficial, and uh, disposable. Uh, his main reason for this is that because it's, it's similar to my brand pornography um, idea, which is just that they are trying to tell too big of a story. They're trying to tell an entire epic history. You can't really do that in an hour and a half or two hour format. It's just not possible. So they always look, they're unfocused. You know, they always, they always go to the same formula of rise, 
you know, stardom and then fall, you know, then addiction, depravity, fall, but then like a, a redemption at the end. This is the same arc that you see through all of them. And they obey that arc. Mm-hmm. There, there just isn't anything else. You know, there's no, that's just sort of like the only thing that they can think to, because it's the only way to tackle the, the, the epic sweep of the entire brand, you could say, from the small. You got to start where the band formed. You got to like finish where they're like on top again as older, wizened, uh, you know, men. Um, and so, you know, I think that's probably what they were doing in, in terms of the dirt, you know, 2019. Mm-hmm. Netflix is they they were basically you know not really hitting those notes with any kind of real examination because they were just sort of taking it as a matter of course that this is kind of where the story the story has to sort of pass through these events so let's pass through them and get to the ending but there you're right there's no curiosity about what there's no curiosity at all in that film <laughs> the film is is just and it is just a per, it's a parade it's a motley crew parade it's not a motley crew biopic it's a, actually a motley crew parade and it is insulting you know during a lot of those parts especially in 2019 mm-hmm. you know, i think there i also saw an, another piece online um this is print is that could a band like motley crew come out today and it was really good in the sense of you know, showcasing here are the five reasons why a band like Motley Crue could not come out today. Mm-hmm. And if you really think about what they became known for, that sort of kind of heteronormative understanding of male desire was part and parcel of the na- of the national discourse in 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 eight nineteen eighties America. But certainly now, in the wake of Me Too, there's no we don't have access to that kind of naivete any longer. We all, we already know too much now. So for a movie to de- almost quite deliberately with, let's say in my piece, I used the, the most glaring example to me was that they just sort of showed these women coming out of dining room tables. Yes. Working and looking like they were so satisfied. Yeah. Chance to give fellatio to one of the, one of the guys from Motley Crue. It's not that that didn't happen. Yes, that did happen. But to just simply kind of tout it and include it because it's in the memoir, and if in a way with a wink and a nod, like with like kind of like a like a you know wink wink nudge nudge, like that's isn't that cool? You know, glorifying, mm-hmm. right? It's inexcusable mm-hmm. in in 2019. It's just it's inexcusable. And I mean, I don't know. I, I I feel quite certain, Rob, that I'm in the, the minority of Motley Crue fans that are as aghast as I am about this film. But, you know, obviously, whatever. It's just a movie, and we can move on. And it's just a band, so we can move on. But for me, the reason why I find it so troublesome is that because, well, obviously, I have my own biographical reasons for that as well. Uh, because I, too, was in a band, and I, too was one of those kinds of guys, you know, and certainly in my memoir, there will be some fairly lengthy atoning for, for that. And not, and not in like a, an, an excruciating kind of way or like a, you know, please whip my back. I was so bad. Mea culpa kind of way, but in a, in, in a way that I, I'm going to endeavor to, to kind of face up to that, to the idea that I too participated in this 
very antiquated heteronormative understanding of male desire, which I think the whole notion of a rock band is somewhat founded on. And I think that we as a culture need to examine that and stop telling stories about a bunch of white dudes getting together to start having sex with women. You know, that's just, it's not really a cool story anymore now, is it? I mean, look who we have as our president, right? It's time to get serious about what we, what stories we're actually telling ourselves. And for me, the reason why I had such a problem with that film is that it is kind of part of the problem, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that was kind of kind of be my next question is because obviously you're, you're kind of reflecting on your own experiences and you uh, are writing something that could potentially I don't know what, what your plans for it would be. But I mean, it could be a biopic. You could have a biopic of yourself. Uh, how, how does that color how you watch a movie like this? It, it colors it greatly. <laughs> yeah, I'm colors sure. <laughs> it colors it gray and and black. Uh, <laughs> no, you know. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm still working on, you know, the, you know, how, what, what kind of goes into the contract, obviously, you know, it's very early, um, and I'm still shopping it around and, and, and talking with people. So, but obviously I have thought about like, well, how do I want to approach the issue about film rights and all of that sort of stuff? And, you know, I'm not in control of any other stories that, that are going to seek to be told about me if, if those happen. Um, about, you know, my old band or my old time in the music industry. Um, and that's frustrating to me because, you know, I don't have, um, I'm not optimistic about the quality of what that, of that, what that endeavor would be, you know, from what I understand about how people are regarding the music that was created and the scene that we were part of, it's not really coming from an elevated place. It's coming from a similarly kind of debasing kind of place that, let's say, this Netflix Dirt movie is. That's just, that's my kind of like, uh, you know, so much more has to happen before I can definitively come down uh, about that. But that's just sort of my impression about what the discourse is around that that time. Um, it's just not something, that, it's not a way of engaging with that material that I'm interested in. So, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, biographical, my, from from my own memoir, you know, uh, obviously I'm going to seek to retain as much control over that material as I can to make sure that when it, if and when it would ever come time to kind of um, hand over the reins of that to, you know, that it would be a good director and it would be a good, you know, and then I would have to take myself out of that because, again, I don't want to be part of the problem in the way that, you know, let's say Brian May was probably part of the problem in Bohemian mm-hmm. Rhapsody. Uh, but, yeah, that's something that might happen. Uh, the, the, the memoir is being written as like a collection of stories and essays, so it's not going to be written in a chronological order. I think that would lend itself to a successful dramatization because then if someone were to be interested in creating a film out of one of those chapters... Um, you could just take that chapter and then that could work as a film. You know, you can make a short story into a working movie. Um, it's it's taking a whole novel or a whole memoir and turning that into a movie that I don't find to be a reasonable uh, endeavor. You know, and documentaries aren't immune either. I mean, uh, you know, 
some kind of monster by Metallica. It's a, it's a it's still a great documentary, I think. But it is. if you go back and watch it, you can see that you know they they're the band is sort of also try, you know polishing their image in in that in that uh, documentary as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That was actually a really good one. I I did like the uh, um, psychiatrist that like kind of tries to sidle his way into joining the band. I thought that was an interesting <laughs> <laughs> part of that movie. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, biopics are interesting because I kind of have some removed from it. So I have uh, I can kind of view it more as just entertainment. Uh, one of my favorite ones isn't actually a real biopic. It's a satire of it. It's a uh, walk hard. The Dewey Cox story with uh, John C. Riley. Oh, my um, God. He covered the the the, uh, the the YouTube video that I plugged earlier. Oh, good. OK. <laughs> about what's wrong with biopics. He, he, he includes a there's a lengthy part in there where he kind of de- takes a deep dive into that satire. Yeah. <laughs> and it made me really want to watch it. I didn't even know that it existed. Oh, yeah. So good. <laughs> yeah. I got to check that out. <laughs> oh, definitely. And it, and it hits all the points, too. Like you said, there's like a formula to it. It, it, it came out right after the uh, Johnny Cash and, and Ray uh, Charles movies that are like almost identical. So it's like one of the siblings dies and then it's like the wrong kid died. And, you know, it's like oh, it just God. hits all, every single beat. So. <laughs> Oh my God, it's laughable. laughable. (laughs) Definitely. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting how, you know, there's, there's truth and where's kind of what we perceive as the truth. And there's a lot of things that they fudge on that I guess we're okay with, like in the queen documentary or documentary, the, the biopic, um, you know, they kind of present the, the, the live aid thing as like, Oh, the band's got to get the band back together. But it's like, in reality, the band wasn't even a part, but it's like, it's so married to the idea of that formula that it has to even twist the truth. That's like demonstrably false. Cause this is like, this is a real thing that happened. This isn't a fictionalized, this isn't a fictional story. This is about an actual band. And we know, just look at their discography. They were still producing albums right up into that and through that. And it's not like it was like they had to get the band back together. It just was a big concert for them and they continued on their merry way, you know? So it's, it's like they have to, they have to like wedge the truth into this like formula that, you know, is just has to be, I guess. So. Well, does it have to be? I mean, I think it has to be only in so far as late capitalism says that it has to be right. That, that's that true. We understand the brand as queen as being this kind of cultural given that cannot be thwarted. Uh, that we cannot investigate because if we do, I mean, look at the pushback against the two gentlemen that came out on the documentary. You know, they're getting death. Mm-hmm. Why are they getting death threats for coming out and talk? You know, what? Why aren't these fans of Michael Jackson free to just simply disbelieve them silently and then just go on? Uh-huh. You know, uh, on their merry way, being a Michael Jackson fan. But no, they feel that their entire identity has been attacked because they have merged with Michael Jackson. In that, and that's how mm-hmm. that power of of stardom in in late capitalism, right? So you you can you'll have a director working on that biopic. I can't even imagine what the immense pressure must be on that that individual to create a certain. There's probably so much on the line. Right. So you're going to have to make live aid be this fantastical thing that supports the kind of uh, lowest common denominator understanding of the queen mythology, which is that this was a victorious show. 
But the truth is so much more complex. It's so much more layered. And what I yearn for is a discourse on, on, on that, on taking our most kind of sacred art objects that have been so successful, bands that have sold so many albums, uh, actors that have been in so many movies, politicians that have won so many elections, whatever the success story is, but I seek to investigate. I seek to hear sto the story within the story, the story that we don't know about, because there always will be. There always will be a story. You can believe that, because that's the human way, right? Humanity is complex. We are complex beings. Mm -hmm. It's capitalism that flattens us, that says, no, we're not. Actually, it can be just as simple as Queen is really cool and Live Aid was one of the greatest shows ever. Like, and we can't go farther than that. And I say, bullshit. That's what mm -hmm. I say. You know what I think would be one of the, one of, one of the greatest biopics, but the, here's, the, here's the problem. This is why so many biopics are so bad. So you, you, in order to tell this kind of a story successfully, you need a world-class film director like Scorsese or like Kubrick, who is no longer with us, but any, pick any other really great director um, to tell this story. I say, go and find somebody that tried really hard to be in a successful band and tried for decades and finally gave up because they went nowhere and then decided to go and do this other thing. You better believe there's a rise and fall there are huge stakes in that story. There's like compelling human drama in that story. You may not have never heard of whoever that person is because they never actually made it, but there mm -hmm. is some story to be told there. And if you get the right person, the, the more, um, you, if you get talented enough people to do that, that's a movie that I want to see. Now, the problem with the biopics is that People get lazy. They say, well, the story is already there because this band already made it or this person already made it. So we don't have to like actually work too hard to tell the story. But that, I, I think that that's bullshit as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's a great point, too. Yeah. And I almost I almost think to have a really good biopic, it almost has to be a fictionalized thing, because uh, one of my favorite movies is Boogie Nights. Mm -hmm. And. That is about a real guy who I oh, don't really? remember the name oh, of. I had no idea. There actually yeah. was a Dirk Diggler. Yeah. Um, they made a documentary about it, him, too. Oh. Or the, No, it was a different movie. It was about the actual guy. I forget. It was like a – but it's loosely fictionalized. And it's – I think it's – but it's able to tell the spirit of that story as opposed to now we have to do this part. Now we have to do this part. Exactly. You know, but like, exactly. I, I feel like I got the like world that it was trying to tell me about without it having to be like about this one particular guy. So I don't know. It almost seems like you have to, you know, uh, do that kind of thing. I maybe, maybe you don't, maybe there's a way to do it, but I don't know. That frees you up a little bit if you're yeah. not, uh, you know, trying to hit every note, you know? So I think also the, the, the Bob Dylan, uh, biopic is a good example of that because so much of that is very interpretive mm -hmm. and it works I think on that level the truth what was uh, something that was observed about Herzog you know the director Werner Herzog of uh, course yes yeah, I mean he's one of my favorites too and I never really thought about this but this also it's pertinent to this discussion if you look at his documentaries they're all very kind of staged on purpose he has his peop the people, the real people that he's interviewing, like 
create mock scenes. Like for instance, in Grizzly Man, he kind of created oh, a mock yeah. scene with the almost like he was using them as actors in a way. So he turns his documentaries into fictionalized or quasi-fictionalized films. But then if you look at his actual fictional movies, he treats them like they're documentaries. Mm. He has his actors try to be as real as possible. And he the way that he films everything is as like absolutely brutally weird, uh, real as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think the thesis that he's making as, a, as an artist is he's saying, you know, the truth is actually the greater truth is actually not in the factual story, but in a de- there's a deeper truth underneath it. And I'm not, you know, there's there's a lot of talk today in society about fake news and all that crap. Which, you know, that's not what I'm talking I just want to be clear about that. That's not, this is not a plug for saying, oh, the truth is relative. And no, the truth is, the facts are the facts. Facts are still mm-hmm. absolutely, totally important. But there is a truth that can be told about a person's life, let's say, if you fictionalize it, that could mm-hmm. be a deeper, more, me- more truer truth, you could say, than the one that, you know, carefully observes the actual factual verisimilitude of that person's life in the in that mm-hmm. well that's that yeah I mean, that's why hunter s thompson's always been one of my favorite writers because even though he was a great journalist uh, on his own when he did his more fantastical things like fear and loathing uh, and yes. you know uh, all that stuff you know it's not it's not literally true there weren't literally lizards in the lounge or whatever at the casino yeah. but like you know when he goes off onto these tangents you get the feeling and i actually get more of a feeling of you know what was happening than somebody yeah. who just said this that and the third so <laughs> but well uh we're getting close to an hour here but i did have one last question for you who if you could pick any actor to star as yourself in the mo- in the movie of your life who would it be i would pick me because i'm an actor too I mean, so, so you could star as yourself coy. i guess <laughs> i'm being coy but hey wouldn't that be, you know, have you seen the Slavoj Žižek uh, documentary where he kind of goes on on lectures, but he's dressed, so he'll go on uh-uh. found about like cinema theory, let's say, and if he tackles Taxi Driver, all of a sudden he's dressed like Travis Bickle and he's in a purpley <laughs> recreated set off of Taxi Driver. I can't remember what the name of this. It is fucking brilliant. And and it just works so well. It's just unbelievable how well this this film works. So, you know, I might be interested in doing a kind of postmodern interpretation of my youth as an old man playing myself as a 15-year-old guy or as a 20-year-old guy or as a 25-year-old guy. Uh, you know, let's not challenge me on this, Rob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, no, that would be pretty interesting if you did that. Uh, you'd, I guess you'd have to, you said you haven't played the bass in a while. I guess you'd have to start practicing practicing again to get your chops back up <laughs> well the great thing about acting is you can look like you are doing something when you're not really doing it <laughs> just hold your hands and generally the right place yeah. i guess yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well That's- well hey thanks for taking the time and uh yeah i uh, hope to read more of your uh, your essays here and uh, did you want to plug your uh, thank you so your much website and all that yeah yeah you go to carlosdengler.com and you click on blog you'll be able to see my writings and the motley crew piece is is right there um i'm sure you're going to include a link in your uh podcast page episode page for this as well um yep. and, you know i appreciate any feedback on this and i really rob i thank you so much and 
for taking an interest in this writing and in this topic. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you about it. Yeah, you too. Anytime. Uh, but I look forward to reading more of your stuff. And uh, yeah, you're welcome back on the show anytime. So That's Great. Looking forward to it. Cool. All right. Well, have a good rest of your day here. You as well, Rob. Take care. Bye-bye. If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. 
Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.